So I haven't gotten to see you since Independence Day, because last week I was on a trip that I'll tell you about in a moment. But uh, happy 4th of July to you. Happy. Uh, my season of independence has gone a little longer than usual, because it started, of course, with Juneteenth, which celebrates the emancipation of slaves in the United States and, and that great sort of continuation of freedom. And then, of course, we did the 4th, but on the 5th, I traveled to Gettysburg to be with 700 of my closest friends who, um, who do this sort of red-blue reconciliation work and unity work across the nation and even uh, beyond the national borders. And so we met, we met in Gettysburg for symbolic reasons because, of course, Abe Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address asked whether the kind of nation we had built could long endure. And the people who work on this kind of stuff are asking that and trying to help make sure that it does, right? So there, we also celebrated because 100 years later, MLK started his I Have a Dream speech with 10 score years ago, or excuse me, five score years ago, 100 years before he was on the anniversary of that speech from Gettysburg. So there's a lot of freedom talk in my last few weeks. So happy Independence Day extended. But as I've gotten ready to do this this week, be with you around Romans chapter eight, it's occurred to me that the Declaration of Independence was a remarkable moment, but it wasn't yet a celebration really because what was going to happen next? A war to try to win that independence. And I'm sure even as they signed, the signers thought, uh, this is gonna be hard, and the odds are against us, but we're going, right? It, it's, it, it's laced through the documents, and we know that to be happening. So my mind goes to Yorktown. I'll tell you that my family, Lin-Manuel Miranda, had my family at Hello. We just loved him from the first time we met him, quote, met him on 60 Minutes in the fall of 2015 when Hamilton, the musical, was moving from off-Broadway to on-Broadway, 60 Minutes saw that the phenomenon, which was sold out everywhere it was appearing, needed to be told about, and my family happened to be eating popcorn and watching 60 Minutes that night. We immediately set everything else down and memorized the whole soundtrack, all 20,520 words, right? The whole family, we had it on all the time. We, we sort of uh, got a little obsessive with it, and so we knew it back and forward. I can't vouch for knowing it back and forward now, but you can see, we fell in love with the thing, and when we eventually got to go in 2018 to see Hamilton on Broadway, we were all expectant and wondering which scenes, having done the music, having done the soundtrack, which scenes would stand out. And there were a couple. There's a reconciliation scene in which Alexander and his wife Eliza finally touch hands again after a very hard time. But the one that sticks out for this week is the Battle of Yorktown. I am a history guy, so in seventh grade, I'm sure I learned that Yorktown was the pivotal battle in the, in the war for independence, right? In the Revolutionary War. But I never really appreciated it until I saw it on stage. Because there they were in the frenetic battle. They were doing the guns and bayonets and all of that stuff. And, and it was chaos and it was order and it was chaos and it was order. But you could, everything was pumping and fast. And then there came a moment when the music and the people all slowed. 
After a week of fighting, a young man in a red coat climbed on the parapet. We laid down our guns as he frantically waved a white handkerchief. All of a sudden, it was over. We tended our wounded. We counted our dead. Black and white soldiers alike wondered out loud, is this freedom? Not yet. The whole place just stopped. In this moment of befuddled recognition, they had won. David had beaten Goliath. Vegas odds had not pertained. And suddenly this upstart gang of revolutionaries had turned the tide and freedom was inevitable. It took them a minute. In the land of the musical, it took them a minute. And then they started to sing the chorus. The world turned upside down. The world turned upside down that kind of swells and grows and they realize this toppling is actually going to happen and it rises to a chorus of we won, we won, we won, we won. I don't know if anybody else was doing this. My whole body, you know, chills you get here, my whole body was lit up with those chills. It's a brilliant moment in history. It's a brilliant moment in the musical. And for us, it's a great pivot point to Romans chapter 8, because Paul isn't just saying in a low voice, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's not his tone here. Think touchdown dance. Think touchdown dance. In order to understand it though, in order to understand it, we have to do something that television shows have done for a long time, which is, previously on the West Wing, <laughs> but we'll do it previously at Covenant Church. Last week, Thomas preached chapter seven and our brokenness and the destitution of being at odds between what we do and what we want to do. There's a famous verse uh, that says, the good that I wish I do not do, I practice the very evil that I do not wish, that kind of epitomizes that brokenness. And here, at the end, the first half of what's on your screen is what Thomas closed with, which is the good news that there is actually rescue coming. Wretched person that I am, who will rescue me from the bo this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's where we put the period last week. But Paul, knowing that you and I would need context this week, two, 20, you know, 20 centuries later, wrote a little summary, kind of a Cliff's Notes, after the exclamation point where he says, so then, with my mind I am slave to the law of God, but with my flesh I am enslaved to the law of sin. That's where we left off last week the brokenness that God intervenes with grace to heal. So we're healed in our relationship with God, we're healed in our relationship with one another, and we're healed in our relationship with ourselves. Thomas brought it, if you didn't get to hear it, please, please go back and listen. But today we land in the celebration, we land in Yorktown. So let's listen together for the word of God as it comes to us from Romans chapter eight. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's what Michael used for the, the pardon. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Exactly what Thomas was talking about last week. Has set you free from that skirmish. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Hold on to spirit as we listen. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But Christ is in you. If Christ is in you, though the body's dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead... Uh, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because... Oh, this got uh, transposed. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, as Thomas put it last week, somebody caught him after worship and said, you must be on lectionary because nobody would preach Romans 7 voluntarily, right? It happens, though, that my family has this weird relationship with Romans 7. I take you to a story of my, my boys. You're going to see a photo of them in a happy moment. Those are my two boys. That's when they're four and two in the back of our Toyota Sienna, all in harmony. Any of you who have kids or grandkids or godkids or just neighbors know that the whole world doesn't look like this. In fact, I remember vividly a moment living in a house in Seattle, Washington, where Isaac, who was just maybe 11 months, that time when they're still teetering, sitting up, but they're also about to walk that kind of between time. He was sitting, teetering, playing happily with his little toys and stuff. And Sam was over here, relatively amused with what he was doing until he got bored. And when Sam got bored, he kind of went on his knees across and almost in a robotic way, I remember thinking this even as it happened, almost in a robotic way, he looked at his brother and he pushed him violently down onto the ground. Once again, he looked at his brother, he pushed him violently down onto the ground, but then something happened that we don't predict when we think of little kids. I told you he looked robotic, he snapped out of it, and he, and he turned to me and he said, Daddy, where does mean come from? He's heard 57 times from mom and dad, uh, you don't push your brother. You don't push your brother. Did we tell you that you don't push your brother? He knew the law. He knew the rules. He knew it all. 
And still, when he got up there, something in him pushed. I think that's Romans 7. The good that I wish, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not wish. The conflict between what we know and what we actually do sometimes. Lived out in my little three-year-old who was kind of doing high-level theology for that age, I imagine. (laughs) Then, fast forward, we in this task of raising kids, uh, we were feeling a little lonely and a little bit lost, and so at this church where I was serving, my wife Liz started a group for parents of young kids because we were at wit's end, couldn't get our guys to sleep, all this kind of stuff. So she said, let's gather, and we thought we'd get maybe three or four couples. We got, we got 40 people, right? Because everybody was desperate for help, and we started to meet. Liz, when it came time to name the group, she called it called it R719, Romans 719, the good that I wish I do not do, I practice the very evil that I do not wish, because it wasn't only kids pushing kids that lived that out, it was parents trying to parent, right? And then there's my moment with Romans 7. And with this, I'm gonna call on the greatest theologian in my view in the 20th century, Karl Barth, because I knew when I was in college, I knew that my Old Adam and Eve, my old self, was supposed to be washed away and drowned in baptism. That's the theology of it. Romans 7 goes away in baptism because I've I've been washed and everything is new and the old self is dead. But look at this quote from Karl Barth. Against the fact of the drowning of the old Adam in the waters of baptism, we need to realize that the rogue is an expert swimmer. Right? Somehow you and I nodded last week when Thomas took us through the good that I wish I do not do, I practice the very evil that I do not wish. We nodded because we know that feeling. Here I am as a, as a student at a Christian college in the state of Oregon called George Fox University. I got a cushy work-study job. I wasn't cleaning toilets. I wasn't doing anything that was harsh. I got to sit at the library desk and check books out. And when people weren't checking books out for me, I could read books. And so I was reading, uh, I was a religion major, so I was reading a book called On Christian Perfection by a guy named John Wesley who founded the, the Methodist movement. Some of you are from Methodist backgrounds. He was the founder of the Methodist movement. And it was On Christian Perfection in which he explored how far does God's uh, bettering of us, how far does God's sanctification of us go? How good can we get? And as I was doing that, I remember vividly sitting at a table in the library and thinking, you know, I have been good for the last hour, for the whole hour, right? I've been good for the last hour, so why can't I be good for the next hour? And then the hour after that, I was starting to get heady with my John Wesley, wasn't I? I could, I could just be good, and then I'd do another hour of being good, and then all the time I would be God's person harmoniously living in the company of God, but then I went over to play basketball. So we've got library over there, we've got basketball over here. I played intramurals, a couple of you have heard this story from another setting, I think. I played intramurals, I had played high school basketball, but I was 5'9 and and skinny, and there was no way I was going to play in college. So I decided to get our dorm floor team together, and I coached it, and I captained it. And we would go out, and we played all right, but I incessantly yelled at the poor referees. 
I couldn't stop it. They'd make a call. I'd say, how can you do that? And these are just students getting work study for it, right? These are just my classmates, and I'm laying into them, and I can't seem to stop. I remember going home and, and journaling. I'm just going to have to stop playing because I, I can't seem to control my anger about this. So on the one hand, you have library days full of bliss and wellness and wholeness and good. And on the other hand, you've got the good that I wish I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not wish. You see how I am mean that my family sits with this Romans 7 stuff? So if you at all sit with this Romans 7 stuff, it is a glorious independence day to get to chapter 8. Because that's where Paul has his Yorktown. It's where he says we can see the finish line. It's where he says God has set us free from the law of sin and death because we walk in spirit. Now, mainline churches are often called the frozen chosen because we don't get up and shout and, and sort of do the spiritual things that are obvious, right? Um, somebody at the, at the earlier service said, many are chilled, but few are frozen. Um, <laughs> but spirit is a big deal for Paul. It's the vehicle by which this freedom happens. Spirit in chapter 8 is something we walk in. You noticed as we read it. We walk in the spirit. We don't walk in that flesh that recoils against God. We walk in the spirit that aligns with God. And when we do that, we're free. And the ways that that spirit shows up are several in Paul. The first that you may just remember from studying in a Bible study or reading on your own or something, maybe it made its way into a sermon, is behavior change. It's the kind of thing Sam was wondering about when he said, where does mean come from? It's the kind of thing I was wondering about when I was yelling at my friends on the basketball court. Behavior change. And for Paul, law doesn't affect that. Now, if, if intelligence got us there, the moral philosophers would be the best people in the world, and believe me, they are not. Um, if, if intelligence or enlightenment got us there, we'd be fine because we'd just read more books or we could just know more. But it doesn't seem to, for Paul's spirit gets us there, and here's how it works. In, in chapter 5 of Galatians, he spells out how this walk changes. He says, for the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, I have a question for you. I'm going to do a little impression of an apple tree bearing an apple. And I want you to tell me if it's accurate for your experience of fruit-bearing trees. All right, you with me? Here's my impression, Alan's impression of a fruit tree getting ready to bear apples. Is that what it looks like? Have you ever stood in an, app, in an apple orchard and heard a tree grunt? No, because what do apple trees do for a living? Apple trees make apples. 
Paul imagines that this spirit, once it gets in us and starts to do stuff and walk around, and once we let it have more space, this spirit actually produces those fruits without a lot of grunting. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like this. Paul's banking on a lot from the spirit, and one part of it is we get better at being God's people. Doesn't happen immediately, and we still have that moment, like my basketball court, but somehow God is making us into a people who are allowing the Spirit freer reign, and our lives are changing. The second thing that the Spirit does for Paul is it makes us good at things that will help us serve one another in the world. Chapter 12 will talk about the gifts of the Spirit, and there'll be things like, you know, you do a good job of, of teaching, but you're really good at encouraging. And then there's that person like back there who has an accounting skill to take care of the money, and then we've got the person who's a really good violinist. Right? All of these gifts are God's way of equipping us to serve one another in the world, and they're just gifts. They're what we're good at. Right? That's a second way that God's Spirit shows up here. The third is prayer. How many of you have mastered prayer in all its forms? How many of you find it a mystery and, and a little difficult and a little lonely sometimes? Okay, more of you do than raised your hands. Right? It's not an easy thing to learn prayer. And, and in, in Romans 8, just after this, where we're going to go next week, Paul says, for the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray, so the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. How great is that language? We get stuck. We feel like there's a lid. We feel like there's something between us and God. The Spirit says, let's blast that thing away. I'll help you, right? So our behavior changes because God is chipping away through the Spirit and we're getting more fruity. Our gifts grow and we appreciate more that what we're good at is, is we're good at because God made us that way. And now we are getting to the point where God assists us in prayer and we join that. And the fourth thing that the Spirit does for us is give us one another. I had a pastorly dream at 3.30 a.m. today. Now, do you wake up with dreams on preaching mornings? This is notorious in pastordom. You think about the sermon all week and then something comes to you early in the morning on a Sunday. This time it was a dream, but it was a great one. I was at some sort of meeting. I, my organization is called House United. I was, I, was, I was at some kind of meeting where I was meeting with people about possibly supporting House United in, the, in, their, in their life together. And it went well. And they decided to do this. And I was kind of feeling really good in my dream. And I started to walk by, and here was a family of people who had voted to support, and their daughter was eight years old. In my dream, this, this little girl turned to me and said, Hi, you're Alan. You're House United guy. And I pray for you every day. It's a dream. But you can't believe how good it felt in the dream. How many of you have experienced knowing that somebody is praying for you, have actually experienced it, not just known they're praying for you, but you kind of feel something happen. There's even blind, blind studies of prayer that, that people 
sort of know somebody's praying for them even if they don't know somebody's praying for them, right? We get the chance. How many of you are in some kind of small group? You don't have to raise your hand. Some point of contact with other people in this church. We get the opportunity through the Spirit to pray for one another and to be prayed for. Anybody vote yay for that? Who's not going to? Friends, the Spirit is Paul's sense of how we get free. The Spirit unleashes Yorktown. We won, we won, and yet it wasn't us. We weren't the winners. God won, and we get the benefit. And God gives us the Spirit. And I've been trying to think of how each of us might experience it, because for some people, experiencing the Spirit sounds a little heebie-jeebie, right? It sounds a little ee, little eerie or something. For others, it's a, it's a native thing. It's been happening for a long time. Some of us feel it as increased sense of power or an increased sense of ability, more than we thought we had. Others of us feel it as a safe and kind of a refuge place. The Spirit is where we, we get to meet with God. Others of us feel like we, we know where mean comes from now and we aren't going that direction. There are a lot of ways that we experience the Spirit. In order to gather them all, I'm going to sort of down the stretch here, give you two stories. One happened when I was in Minnesota. I was working at a church, and in Minnesota, summer lasts officially about 15 minutes. And so people in Minnesota go to their cabins during summer because you're only there for a little while. Getting outside during summer is a big thing in Minnesota. So at this church where I worked, we had a, a good-sized congregation. But on Sunday, su summer, Sundays in the summer, it wasn't such a big congregation. It, it got smaller by a big margin, more than it has in anywhere I've ever been. So a group of us got together and said, you know what we ought to do? Have a Wednesday, have a Wednesday worship service in the evening. And let's do it outside, because then people will be outside when they worship. And it, it, went, it took off. And it, we had people out on the lawn outside the church uh, doing this wonderful worship service every Wednesday during the summer, and it was great. Well, I got to be the pastor who worked with the team who built that. And, and there came a time when we knew we were at a point where we could, we could ramp up a little bit. And so I asked who would be the great, because the format was we have a concert with a local artist, and then it leads into worship where that artist does one of the songs. So I asked what, what person would be great for the next step in WOW, Worship on Wednesday? What would be a great next step? And somebody said, Let's get Carrie Noble. Now, most of you aren't familiar with Carrie Noble. She's a radio personality in the Twin Cities who is also has a lovely voice in several albums. And it was a big ask because she's a celebrity. And by the way, she came from a household that was Christian in a way that had completely turned her off. So several times, our guy asked her, would you be willing to come to sing for our church? And she several times said, no way, I don't sing in churches. And finally, he got a new idea. He said, would you be willing to sing near a church? <laughs> I thought it was ingenious. And she said, yes, as long as I don't have to go in that building, I'll come and sing. And by the way, I'm getting tired of saying no to you. And so, so Carrie Noble came on a Midsummer Wednesday, and we had 500 people on the lawn, almost double what we'd ever had. And it was this amazing night. She's playing the piano and getting ready to sing a song, and she stops abruptly, and she says, you all are weird. And then she starts again. 
And then after she plays a little, seems like you'll let anyone come in here. And of course, everybody in the congregation is just thinking, it's exactly who we hope to be. And she sings beautifully. We have our worship. And then afterward, we meet as a staff, as a team that builds this thing. And we're all very excited. It's the best one we've ever had, not only for attendance, but for everything. We sit down, and one of the guys, who's not very theological, in fact, he, he kind of gets in the music side and not much of the other side at that point in his, his Christian career, he looks at me and he says, Alan, I'm utterly confused. And I said, what's up, Adam? And he said, I feel this sense of accomplishment but I also see, feel this great sense of gratitude. Who did it, God or us? Right? When the lines blur, the spirit is at work. When the lines blur, the spirit is at work, and the last story gets at that even a little more. There's a, a story that may be apocryphal about a guy who was the rock star of the early 20th century in the United States. He was Bono or Elvis or you name your version of, I would stay in line for a long time to get tickets. And his name was Ignacy Jan Paderewski. He was from Poland and was one of those disgusting people who's talented at everything he does, but he was a very, very sought after pianist. And people, it, it's almost like the Who concert, people stampede to get tickets. He played Carnegie Hall 90 times in the early 20th century. So he's going to do a concert at the peak of his powers, at the, at the height of his fame, in Carnegie Hall, and tickets are just flying off, off the shelf. And, and as a way of exciting her eight-year-old boy for playing the piano when she couldn't get him to practice, a woman puts together her money and gets a ticket, and she gets there early enough to actually get a really good one. So she's in the front row with her son, who's eight years old, getting ready to hear Paderewski. And you can imagine the buzz in the house. Paderewski is the thing. So people are waiting with expectation and anticipation, and they're buzzing with one another. And the woman's boy is here, and the woman is here. And she reaches over, and she starts talking to her neighbor. Isn't this going to be great? Isn't this going to be great? And I, my name's Bessie, and all those things. And she turns around, and her boy's not there anymore. Her eight-year-old John has gone, and she can't find him. And she's worried, and she's just, she, and this is New York, and she, and she looks up, and to her horror, he's sitting at the Steinway on the stage. Paderewski hasn't come out yet. The kid is sitting at the Steinway, and he starts to play chopsticks. <laughs> and everybody is sort of cross between laughing and scowling at him, and they don't know what's gonna happen until Paderewski comes out of the wings, and he steps in behind the boy, and this little dun, 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 it suddenly becomes a masterpiece, because Paderewski moves his hands into play, and the thing becomes beautiful. As I say, that might be apocryphal. It could have happened. It could have been written by a pastor who wanted you to, to use it as an illustration. We don't know. But not by this pastor. I got it somewhere. It, it's a beautiful way to imagine what God does when we open ourselves to God's spirit. We have our feebleness. We have our sort of attempts at goodness, attempts at skill, attempts at all these things. And God comes in behind us as the master musician and joins our hands and makes something amazing happen.
by way of closing, I want to ask you, how silly would it be for the boy to say, uh, no, that's, okay. that's all right, I don't need you. I'm good. The boy loved being helped. Yet here you and I are trying to do it on our own over and over and over, and we end back in Romans 7 over and over and over. What if we just let the Spirit come fresh? What if we just realize the God of the universe wants to move in and help our song and change us and change the world and let that happen? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Amen.